Good morning, everybody. For our scripture this morning, I'd like for you to look with me at Luke, the 16th chapter. <clears throat> and we'll begin our reading in the 19th verse, read through the end of the chapter. Uh, before reading, there may be some of you here um, who knew or remember uh, Jerry and Jan wrote. He came to uh, Gillette back in the mid-70s and planted what is today New Life Wesleyan and was well known through the community. Um, and Jan passed away a week or so ago and there is a two o'clock today memorial service at Journey Church and they've asked that we mention that for any of you who may want to uh, pay their respects. In chapter 16 of Luke, Jesus gives several parables about the kingdom of God and so forth and he is aiming them at the Pharisees, and we won't get off into who the Pharisees were so much, but in verse 14, it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And so Jesus spoke one more parable, and that's the rich man and Lazarus. They believed the Pharisees that riches in life were an evidence, a proof of God's favor and of that person's righteousness. Poverty was considered the punishment of God upon people, and they had it coming, I guess. And so it was a very non-biblical position. And... So Jesus speaks to them, beginning with verse 19. Some call this a parable, um, and I'll get into maybe uh, later why they call it a parable. I don't think it is. It gets introduced differently than every other parable. He will always say the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. This just states there was a rich man. I think for that different introduction. It is a literal person he knew or that they would know. But second of all, it really doesn't matter because Jesus wouldn't give a parable to illustrate a spiritual truth that was itself in error. Um, so whether it's a parable or it's an actual person that he knew, uh, the point is the same. Beginning in 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
Abraham's side is a euphemism, a figure of speech for paradise, for heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm or gulf has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is one of several glimpses into the state of the dead after they have died. Job asked the question. Job is likely the, the oldest book in the Old Testament. He asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? The question of what happens to us when we die is ancient. And there's really not a tremendous amount of evidence, just a bit really, that God has given us as to what's it like after we die. Now the Old Testament had a concept of resurrection and they recognized Job himself answered his question. He said, even though the skin worms devour my flesh, yet in my flesh will I see my Redeemer. So he had a concept. It was murkier, of course, in the Old Testament. But there was a clear sense of a resurrection and some form of judgment following that. Now, I want today is the first day, and I don't know how many, I think maybe just one more, on we've been looking at general eschatology, last things. Today I want to focus and finish on individual end times or eschatology. Not the end of history, but what occurs in each one of our lives when we die. 
What happens? Where are we? What's it like? Scripture has something to say about it. Back of it, though, or beneath it, is a fundamental truth of Scripture that assume, we assume when we talk about life after death. No one talks about life after death who doesn't, whether they even know it or not, doesn't have some form of belief in the immortality of the soul. You don't talk about life after death unless you believe that though my body dies, my soul, my spirit must live on. Or you don't talk about life after There is no life after death. So uh, the founding cornerstone doctrine of life after death assumes that the spirit that we have that our body houses, this is just the tent in which the real me and you lives. That real you and me is an eternal spirit come directly from God. The record of that is when God formed Adam of the dust of the ground. And then the scripture says this, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath, literally, the breath of lives. And man, Adam, became a living soul. So the, the life that I have, the life that you and I have, came directly from God. It cannot perish. It can't cease to be. It lives forever. With the problem we have is when Adam and Eve sinned, death came in this, these forms. One, that spirit come from God was separated from fellowship with God, thus died instantly, cut off. Died never means spiritually that it ceases to be. It's separation from God, but we don't stop being. So our souls, our spirits, were separated from God at the moment of sin. And when God told Adam and Eve, if you disobey me, you eat of the tree I told you to leave alone, dying you will die. Dying, you will die, tells us there are two deaths. There's spiritual death, which is separation from God. But then there's physical death, which is not instantaneous. We live nowadays, as Moses said, three score and ten, or maybe four score, but we die. Our bodies are dying our spirits died in the sense of being cut off from God. God's whole aim is to restore my spiritual life, my spirit, to life in being born again, being converted. The gap between me and God is closed. I'm once again in fellowship with God, and so my spirit is now alive. I am alive in Christ. 
but my body's still dying. And it will, it will eventually die. The way that God intends to undo that eventually is the resurrection. He will not allow anything of what he created, all of which he said was very good. Satan lured Adam and Eve to disobey God, and it destroyed God's creation. He will restore it to every last bit. Not only in this life will he restore the lost image of God in my heart so that I can have fellowship with God in likeness here, but he will not allow the devil to have destroyed even this body which he made and said it's good. So he will resurrect, not create a new me, new body, he will, however he does it, bring together whatever is left, even if it's nothing, of our bodies and give us a resurrected body different from this one, but yet the same. Because there's nothing wrong with this that sin hasn't damaged. He'll undo the damage. Give us a new body, never subject to decay or death or disease any longer. In that new resurrected body, our living spirit will fellowship with God for all of eternity. Or will be in torment for all eternity in a body that cannot die. This is what Jesus then was speaking about here. And while there are, some, there are some scriptures that shed more light on the afterlife of the Christian, this is one of the very, very few that speak of the condition of the wicked after they die. This is maybe one of the clearest that we have. So, looking then at the foundation, our soul's spirits live forever, either with God or without him. Now, a question that arises, is there then between death and the eventual resurrection, what state are we in in that period? Second, not only are we in what's called an intermediate state, but are we also in an intermediate place? And I want to try to answer both of those questions this morning. There are several theories we need to look at. We always have to look at what the errors are, because there are always errors that are taught, before we then go to Scripture for the answer. So the second thing I want to look at are various theories of what happens after we die. First of all, there is, we can say this, probably at least four, maybe five different theories. One, first one we'll look at is called soul sleep. Okay? 
Soul sleep is a state of complete unconsciousness. No awareness of anything. And that is only interrupted by the resurrection and final judgment. So every person, according to that theory, those you know have died. Everybody that's died from Adam till today is in a state of coma. It, it, there's, there's nothing. There's no awareness. Awaiting resurrection. <clears throat> now, the, the, probably there's, there's two groups. And again, if you've got any relatives or whatever, they're in these two groups. I'm not beating up on them. I'm just telling you they're, they're wrong. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists teach soul sleep. Okay? Soul sleep. Um, but again, and I can't take forever. There's always an underlying error you can't see that brings into focus the error we can see. Soul sleep is an error. But why would Seventh-day Adventists teach soul sleep? Because of a deeper error. They have a notion that when you die, and I'm, i got to be as fair as I can be, God doesn't know what to do with you yet. Okay? And so, Jesus is continually engaged right now in what's called the investigative judgment. The investigative judgment is based on a notion then that let's, let's take a guy that can't win. Seventh-day Adventists believe that you are guilty for the impact of your life and your deeds even after you die. They continual. They continue to accrue. If you raised your kids to hate church and not love God, and so they end up living lives that have nothing to do with God, not only what you did, but your, your acts of sin are continuing to bear fruit. If your kids teach their kids, and so your grandkids are hellions, that still get the, the meter just keeps running. A guy that can't win is Adam. His meter still running. And so God can't pronounce final judgment because he's weighing all of the accruing influence of your life. So Jesus is busy trying to keep the records up and trying to figure out eventually what is going to happen to you. Okay? So he can't, you can't immediately then know your future after you die. No one goes directly to be with Jesus, no matter what Paul said. No one goes to be with Jesus because you might not make it. What a wonderful doctrine. Most people aren't going to make it, I guess, because somewhere you did something that influenced somebody who did something bad, and it's your fault. Now, someone might say, that's not a fair... Yeah, it's fair enough, okay? 
Seventh-day Adventist, that doctrine is ridiculous. Okay? It's also, I have to throw this in, it is a cooked-up doctrine to cover the fact that for two spectacular times in the 1800s, in 1843 and 44 to be exact, the massive, dead, sure, can't-not-happen return of Jesus didn't happen. The first time, I think it was March or October, I'm not sure, of 1843, Jesus was returning again, and the followers of William Miller, who started the Seventh-day Adventists, um, got rid of farms, put white robes on, stuck, stood on hills back in Pennsylvania and wherever, waiting for Jesus to come, and he didn't show up. Well, he sharpened his pen and figured out that he was, I think, either a year or six months, can't remember for sure. He was off. And so they didn't calculators in those days, and he had to go with paper. And so he sharpened his pencil and figured out he was off. So they predicted September or October of 1844. Well, once again, Jesus failed to show up. Miller rightly said, I've been wrong on this whole business. I should have never tried to predict it because Jesus said not to, finally. And he says, I'm just going back to being a Baptist preacher. I'm not preaching Seventh-day Advent stuff anymore. But one of his main followers, Ellen G. White, had a vision that, in fact, Jesus did do something in October of 1844. He didn't return to the earth, but he did enter for the first time since he was crucified. What? Since the first time he was crucified, 18, he waited 1844 years, then he decided to go into the Holy of Holies in heaven to cleanse the temple in heaven. Now, I'm not aware that something in heaven needed cleansing, but apparently Ellen knew that it did. And so to cover up the embarrassment that the prediction Jesus would return didn't happen. They cooked up the notion that Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies to begin the investigative judgment where Jesus is pouring through all of the records in the Rolodex to figure out who's going to heaven and who's not. Okay? So that's why you got to have soul sleep because you've got to account for suspended judgment while Jesus figures out what to do. Okay, are you totally confused? It's nuts. Now, that soul sleep notion then is number one. What first one look? Second is annihilation of the wicked. Annihilation of the wicked is something that also said the Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and a few others believe. They believe then that when Jesus finally ends the exhausting job of figuring out who's going where, if you don't make it, those of you whose influence has not been so bad that it cancels you out, will you go to hell? No. You will, they believe, first, another thing, they deny the immortality of the soul. The soul only lives beyond death, physical death, 
as a gift from God. So eternal life in the sense of ongoing existence is a gift only for the righteous. The wicked don't get the gift of living on as a spirit. Okay? They die physically, slumber, just sleep in coma in the grave. And when we come to the judgment, God will resurrect everybody. He will pronounce those that are um, righteous and they will go into heaven. And then what happens to all of the wicked? It is a puff of smoke, blue smoke, and you're gone. You're just gone. You're annihilated. You're gone. So that's a second theory, which is not just held by Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. Some others also believe it. But anyway, the notion is that the Spirit does not live beyond unless you're a Christian. Everybody else is just snuffed out, and that's it. Third theory comes from what's called universalism. Universalism is the belief that ultimately no one will not be in heaven. Everyone will be saved. Okay? The belief is that to, for God to allow someone to reject his love in trying to save us is somehow an affront to God. And it diminishes God. It means God's a failure. God can't be a failure. So he will save ultimately, eventually, everybody. Some extreme universalists even believe that the devil will respond, you know, to an altar invitation and find his way back to God. And the devil's going to end up saved and in heaven, which is total insanity, okay? Um, but universalists, which often, they're still around, the Unitarian Universalist Church, um, believe in no one ever being lost. Now, some believe that there is a period of torment, anguish, grief that the unbelievers will suffer for a while after they die. But the only purpose, like the rich man, the only purpose that the rich man was in torment was so he would see the error of his ways and as a second chance he could then call on God and say, man, I, I blew it and I, I went out of here. And so everyone, according to universalism, will finally come to the point where they see, we blew it, thanks for a second chance, and so everybody's going to be saved. Okay? Finally, a fourth um, is purgatory. Um, we got to understand purgatory, and it's hard to make it clear. There's an awful lot of false notions, I think, about purgatory. Um, but at any rate, purgatory developed into a Roman Catholic doctrine as early as the five, six hundreds. And purgatory, from its name, is a place of purging. Okay? It's really not intended to be a place of punishment. There's a bit of punishment, but it's not really, really bad. 
Okay? Now, the wicked, and there's some differences of teaching within Catholicism, but generally, the wicked do not go to purgatory. The really, truly wicked go straight to hell. Do not pass go. You do not collect $200. Okay? You go straight there. The Christian who has had his sins forgiven, but none of us can ever fully repent um, as we should have. None of us recognize the utter depth of sin sufficiently so that when we do repent, it's an insufficient repentance. God counts it and forgives our sins mortal sins. Mortal sins are sins that will cut you off from God. The other kind of sin is venial sin. Venial sins are involuntary things, mistakes, shortcomings that are done without cooperation of your will. In other words, I didn't even know I did it or whatever. Now, that's not unbiblical. The Bible teaches that there, John said, there are some sins unto death and there are some sins that aren't unto death. That is a distinction that I don't agree, disagree with at all, Catholicism use different names, but mortal is your will. It's a willful knowing disobedience. Venial is accidentally, involuntarily due to infirmities. Okay? So they believe then that the mortal sins have been forgiven, so you'll eventually get to heaven. But for the incomplete repentance due to mortal sins and to the penalty for venial sins, you got to go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you, you will endure some temporary discomfort while you pay the cost that you still owe. Um, you've heard of the term penance. That is when you go to confession, you say what you did, and then the priest will prescribe some act called penance you say so many Hail Marys you say so many Our Fathers you light so many candles you you know whatever you do things that used to be you know more discomfort like literally in the medieval terms you've probably heard of somebody wearing a hair shirt okay you they'd make you wear turned in, out you know turned inside a skin shirt or coat that would, you know, you'd have to wear a wool shirt with no t-shirt, okay? And that's penance. I'm, is this kind of echoey? Or is it my imagination? Okay. I just, anyway, it could be so, it's just, just so impressive. But um, anyway, you got to do something that's uncomfortable to earn off the demerit that you have against your name. Now, so your time in purgatory varies. Not only what you did and what you owe in penance, but it also grew to become also dependent on um, the living praying for you. Pray, light candles, contribute money will get you out of purgatory earlier. There's just enough displeasure there 
that you feel sympathy for your loved ones who are there, knowing they're in some form of discomfort. And so that your urge then to pray for their speedier release, the last straw for Martin Luther was the fundraising that was done to get people out of purgatory. And the little jingle that um, was common in Germany, at least, was when into the coffer a coin doth ring, another soul from purgatory doth spring. So, dear folks, Grandma, and she made chocolate chip cookies and stuff for you, and you loved her, and she's still there, and, you know, she's not in hell, but it's not fun. And there's fires for purging. Let's get Grandma out. We're trying to build a new cathedral or whatever else. And so if you can contribute, you'll get Grandma out, and we can build the building. And that's exactly what took place. That was kind of the last straw for Martin Luther, and so he went off the deep end, wrote 95 Reasons Why the Pope Was a, a as quote, fool and maniac, um, and the Protestant Reformation and the big split occurred. Um, so those are at least four major theories of where you go and what happens after you die. Now, let's turn to the Bible. One, in Scripture, I believe the Scripture strongly teaches us that there is uninterrupted consciousness, meaning a person dies, their spirit never even loses consciousness. They are immediately in the presence of God. It's appointed unto man wants to die. After that, the judgment. Ecclesiastes 12. The spirit returns to God who gave it. Moses in Psalm 90. Our years are four score and ten or whatever. Three score and ten or four score. And then it says, we fly away. Well, to where? Ecclesiastes says, back to God who gave me my spirit. It returns to God. There's no hint in Scripture of soul unconsciousness or soul sleep. We are immediately ushered into the presence of God Stephen said he saw Jesus and, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the scripture says, and he fell asleep. By the way, sometimes the soul sleep people, they, they point to, well, the Bible says they went to sleep. Goodness sakes. It's a figure of speech. That's all it is. Those who sleep in Jesus doesn't mean in a coma. 
It's just a figure of speech. We, we use figures of speech all the time. We most Because death's also kind of unpleasant. We don't often say, so-and-so died. They passed away. They went away. You know, they passed. We come up with some word because it's just, it's still our enemy. any rate, Stephen said, receive my spirit. Saul said, or Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, there's no hint there of some unawareness of where you're at or holding place that you have to go to. We are in the presence of God. Okay? Now, we are then in an intermediate state, meaning condition. And that condition is, this sounds kind of maybe strange to us, but it's the state of being a disembodied spirit. My spirit is conscious and aware and able to recognize Jesus and so forth, but I do not have a body because the resurrection has not occurred yet. Okay? So that is a condition in which we exist for however long. The other issue is then, are we in an intermediate place? And I'll touch on that here and try to finish. Lazarus and the rich man that we just read, there's no hint that they weren't aware. Rich man was aware. Lazarus was aware exactly where they were. Now, <clears throat> there is, here's a question then that we have to ask. If the resurrection hasn't occurred yet, the judgment, great judgment, where Revelation 20, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. If that hasn't occurred yet, if the judgment hasn't occurred yet, then how do you know where you're going to be and are you already there? Yes, there is some clear sense of awareness. Even prior to the great formal judgment, there is not really informal, but you could say an informal, immediate judgment when we die, that we don't, we won't spend from now, let's say we die today, and the resurrection isn't for 100 years. We're not going to spend 100 years in a, an intermediate place, holding pen, and an intermediate state, wondering if we're going to go to heaven or hell. That won't be. The rich man whether there was a resurrection or not, knew immediately where he was. So did Lazarus. So there is an awareness that we will have the instant we perish, the instant we breathe our last, of where our eternity will be. There's no question about that. Now, some could quickly, I could say this, some could wonder, well, why have a final judgment? Oh, there's a lot of reasons for a great final judgment. One, it's all public Everything's going to come out. Everything will be known. God's judgment and justice will be vindicated completely. All the stuff that we say, man, they got away with it. They won't. It'll all come out. And it says before that, time will be no more, so we're in no hurry. Everything will come out. And also, 
It's to the advantage of God then to vindicate his justice at the great judgment. It's also the vindication of the righteous. The righteous whom the world has had nothing to do with, disregarded, killed, ridiculed, will be vindicated in front of all of their mockers and their accusers. We will be vindicated. Those are two, there's more, but those are two really good reasons why there's still going to be a general judgment attended by everybody who's ever lived. But we will know. So when we get to that, nobody's going to be surprised. There won't be any second chance, by the way, in the, in the meantime. Now, I really have to wrap up here. Generally, the Old Testament had a term called Sheol. New Testament, Greek, Hades. Abode of the dead, place of the dead. Some believe that the abode of the dead is sort of an intermediate place that is itself divided into, with a great gulf fixed, divided into two realms where, called paradise and torment. Um, people make much of Jesus saying to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. As if somehow that's different from heaven. Personally, mo most of the time, in general, Protestants have always rejected the idea of an intermediate place. Just the, um, Protestants hold to an intermediate state will be in heaven or will be in torment. But we won't have a body yet till the resurrection. But we'll already be in, we'll be reaping our reward. Let's put it that way. We will be receiving for eternity what, depending on what we've done with God and his light and his truth. So personally, there could be a kind of intermediate place, but I don't think so. Um, I, I guess in the end, it's again, like much of this, much of end time stuff, it may not be worth arguing about. And differing opinions can be held. But I think Lazarus, rich man, Stephen, Paul, a number of people who clearly spoke of immediately being in the presence of God. And we, it says, will be with Jesus forever. So I don't buy personally the idea that there's a kind of place you know, a different station where you stay until the resurrection. I believe you're in heaven or you're in hell, but in a disembodied state. And after the resurrection, both the righteous and the wicked will have a body not subject to disease, decay, or death, which will make heaven fuller and hell worse because we will be unable to extinguish the torment that we're in. The Lord willing, next week I want to look at both, what, what does the Bible say about, literally, about heaven, about hell, and what, what are people doing there? What's it like? Especially hell is not pleasant. 
But Jesus himself said more about hell than any other speaker in both Old and New Testament. He doesn't want us to go there. So he told us enough about it, hopefully, that we'll listen. Let's bow our heads. Dan, if you'd come and dismiss us with prayer.